One Hope Church. A special welcome you for visiting with us today. We're thankful that you're here. Um, do want to just pray for Eduardo and Vanessa. Um, yesterday, Eduardo uh, was cooking some bacon in the oven and pulled the pan out a little too fast, and the hot bacon, you know, grease came all over to his arm. And then, uh, so he lost a lot of, he burned himself really bad and lost his, so a good bit of skin. Um, so he's in Augusta. They're in Augusta this morning. They left about 4.30 this morning for him to get some skin grafts to take care of that. He'll be fine, but, um, you know, we're thankful that we have access to such great medical care. You know, in a, a lot of places in the world when something like that happens, um, you know, the recovery is a lot, a lot more difficult. So... Just thankful for that, but uh, also just lift them up in prayer this morning. Um, we'll also continue through our study book of Matthew, uh, so we're going to be in chapter 16. So let's just go ahead and pray, and we'll lift up Eduardo and Vanessa and others who can't be with us this morning. Um, so, Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you for your, your many blessings to us, God. We're thankful that Eduardo wasn't hurt any, any worse than he was. Thankful for the, the access to great medical care that we have here, and just please be with him and Vanessa as they have that procedure going on even now, Lord. Um, and as they travel back today, Lord, please give them safety um, on the roads. And for others in our church family who are um, out of town uh, this morning or who are sick, Lord, we ask that you would um, encourage them through your spirit. Uh, maybe we be one and united in spirit and in truth. And help us this morning uh, to understand more of your word and to apply it correctly. Uh, to our lives, so that we can live in a way that pleases and brings you honor and glory. And at the same time, Lord, we know we are full of faults, and um, Lord, we are in ever need of your grace and your mercy in our lives, and we thank you that you have given it to us abundantly as we see, Father, your Son, uh, Jesus, put on the cross for our sins. Uh, what grace and mercy abounds from your throne. Uh, we thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for us. May your name be lifted high this morning. Uh, may your breath fill our lungs to praise you, to give you glory and honor. Uh, Lord, be with us in this time, we pray. May we receive all the glory and honor for every good, that, all the good that comes out of it. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. All right, so let's uh, pick up in Matthew chapter 16. Um, we'll read the first four verses, and we're just going to go section by section through this. It says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So here again, we have another confrontation um, between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, um, or the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so... Um, this is becoming kind of a, a, a common, a more common occurrence uh, that these um, interactions 
uh, that, are, that are happening. Now remember at this point, for our context, we've seen Jesus do all sorts of miracles to this point. We've seen him feed you know, 5,000 families and then 4,000 families. And we've seen him you know, um, heal you know, people and raise the dead and you know, the blind see and the lame walk. All these things have happened. You have all of his teaching. And yet they still say, show us a sign. Prove to us who you really are. Even though he has shown time and again that he is the one fulfilling the promises that were given concerning the Messiah throughout the law and the prophets of old. So these were the ones that have should have known, who should have recognized Jesus first, because they had the greatest access to the law and the prophets. They were the ones who were supposed to dedicate their lives to what God has said and what does God desire from us. Yet, they had become so entrenched in religious activity and in the, and in the teachings and in the traditions of men that they completely miss the Messiah when he arrives on the scene. Because in their minds, again, in their context, especially considering that they're occupied by the Roman Empire, they are looking for someone who's going to come, obviously, as a king, you know, to free them from Roman oppression. They are not looking for a suffering servant who is going to die for the sins of the people. They're looking for the wrong thing, they're expecting the wrong thing, and their motivations are wrong because they are more concerned about their personal positions and their personal wealth than they are about the things of God. And so, you know, they, they, they continue to ask for these signs even though, you know, Jesus has done so much. And so Jesus tells them that they won't be given, you know, it's like you're not going to be given another sign except the sign of Jonah. What does he mean by that? Well, if you remember from, you know, the, the story of, of Jonah in the Old Testament, um, Jonah, fleeing from the will of God, is swallowed by the great fish, and he's in the great fish for three nights. And so, in the same way, Jesus is going to spend you know three nights in the in the tomb. Um, and so, that's the sign that he says that they're going to receive. Now, let's continue this in verses five through twelve. It says the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they have forgotten to bring any bread. Man, they sound so human, like us, right? You know, you just forget stuff sometimes. Like, where, did I leave my wallet at home? Really? Did I do that? Uh, but they forgot to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? And do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up, or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up, and how is it that you do not understand that I do not speak concerning, to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that they did not say to them, beware of leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So let's look at some of the lessons that we can learn you know, from this. Again, it's easy for us to focus um, on our failures. It's easy for us to focus on our lack of resources or apparent lack of resources and to forget that we have 
Jesus. To forget that all that he's done for us up until this point. Because we could simply look at it in an immediate context of, we forgot to bring bread. You know, or I don't have, I, I failed, I forgot to do such and such, or I didn't do such and such, or I don't have X, Y, or Z resource. Now, what am I going to do? And we kind of panic about, what am I going to do? And we can forget that we have Jesus. Jesus reminds them, what have I done for you before? How many extra baskets of bread do we have when I fed the, you know, the 5,000 or the 4,000? How much was left over? He's getting them to remember. Well, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you know, you can still have that moment where you think, you know, you lack something. But then think back to what Jesus has done for you in the past. How he has provided for you. What he has accomplished in your life. Think back to the cross. Think back to before you met Jesus. Consider his grace and his mercy. And yet, we can be like these disciples of such little faith. Such little faith. I know that that phrase can describe myself at times, and I'm sure, for all honest, describes each one of us at times. You of little faith. Multiple times Jesus says that to his disciples. And he, and he questions them, how is it that you do not understand that I don't speak to you concerning bread? Again, it's easy for us to focus on the, the physical to, and to forget that what we believe is what matters most. The leaven is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That that teaching is a, a teaching that can corrupt them and corrupt others. And as we'll see as we continue this passage, Jesus is thinking about the future in his church. And so he says, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and of the scribes, because that teaching is not according you know, to the way of God. And that can corrupt the disciples themselves, and it can corrupt ultimately the church down the road. These traditions of, of men that are more concerned about the appearance of things than the spiritual reality. And then, as far as we're concerned here this morning, you know, the same thing is often true of us today. You know, many people who say, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian or, or whatever it is, will, pay, will literally pay more attention to their groceries than they will to their theology. We'll take more time in, in each week to consider what food do I have, what do I need to get from the store, you know, what, am I, what meals am I going to prepare, where am I going to eat out. We'll consider more the things of physical food than of spiritual food. Of what, is, what do I believe? What is really important in life? What is my foundation? What is my grounding? You know, disciples here are a lot like us. <laughs> More aware of the physical than of the spiritual. More concerned about the physical than the spiritual. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into that trap. One other thing we see here is that leaven itself is not bad. In verse 12, um, he did not say beware of the leaven because of the bread. 
uh, but because of the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. And back in chapter 13, we saw Jesus say this about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, or yeast, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Um, and so, you know, that's three pecks of flour. is about a cubic foot of, of flour. And, you know, you just put a little pinch of, of yeast in there. It gets all mixed in. It's going to leaven the whole bit. It's going to cause all of the bread to, to rise. And, you know, if you've ever cooked a loaf of bread, you know, the amount of yeast that you use, the amount of leaven that you use compared to the whole amount of flour is really tiny, right? And so what Jesus is saying here. It's not about yeast being good or bad. It's a neutral thing. It's an illustration. But he's saying, you know, what you believe, like if, if it's positive, a little bit goes a long ways. If it's negative, a little bit goes a long ways. Chapter 13, chapter 16. Just whichever way, you know, that that, that yeast is. If it's good, it's going to have a, a really positive effect. Um, but if it's negative, just a little bit of bad teaching can hinder people's lives. We also see from all of this that, you know, whether your communion bread is leavened or unleavened or gluten-free, not going to be a spiritual sense, like, it doesn't doesn't matter. You know, the Passover, you know, when they had the Passover meal, the Last Supper, Jesus with the disciples, I mean, that that was unleavened. Okay, that was unleavened because, you know, the context, remember the context that that's given in. In Corinthians, um, the word that's used talking about, you know, taking the bread and, and the cup, it's just the common word for bread, the common bread that would have, a, have yeast in it. It doesn't matter. Sometimes in some places, you know, people get really hung up on whether it does or, or whether it doesn't, but that can kind of miss the point and kind of miss the point. The point is, represents Jesus, that he died on the cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead and he gives life to those who call on his name. The key thing with it in the church is that Jesus is being worshipped. That the teachings of the, of the church, whatever church it is, are consistent with the teachings of Jesus and, and with his apostles. That we go according to what the scriptures say, and again, not according to, to other traditions. So let's pick up at verse 13 as this continues on. We're going to see this about the church. It says in verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, it's about 30 miles north of Galilee, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Here's that key question Jesus asks. You know, he asks the question, you know, who do the people say that I am? And, and these would have been, you know, without full understanding, these are so pretty complimentary 
descriptions that the people are saying, you know, John the Baptist, like John the Baptist risen from the dead. Remember at this point, John the Baptist had been executed. Um, Elijah or Jeremiah, you know, one of the prophets. But then Jesus says to them that key ultimate question, but who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? You know, and Peter um, answers for the whole, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, he makes his, his declaration, his statement of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, in reality, uh, we know that Jesus, um, you know, has to be something, right? Because he's real. He's existed historically. There's no debate about this, that reality. But, you know, was he a prophet? Was he a good teacher? Was he a God, little g? Was he a lunatic, a liar, a traitor? Or was he the Messiah, the true Savior and King, the name above all names, the one from everlasting? This is the, you know, the ultimate question. And now we would argue that according to the scriptures that Jesus claimed to fulfill, he couldn't be a just prophet or a good teacher or a little g God. Those options have to be eliminated because of the fact that he accepted worship. You know, and only God could accept worship. So he's either the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one from everlasting, or he is a, a liar, or he is a, you know, intentionally, or he is a crazy person, and he's lying unintentionally. So C.S. Lewis rightly argued that these are the only real options. Liar, lunatic, or Lord, kind of in his famous proposition. But I think that's one that's also, he's reiterating what's been held by followers of Jesus for a very long time um, concerning Jesus. And so Simon's answer is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, that is, that is our hope. That is why we come and we take the bread and the cup each Sunday to remember Jesus, because we are declaring that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that he is the Son of the living God, that he is the true Savior and King of the universe, that he is our, our all and all, and that we have pledged our allegiance to him, that we have pledged our allegiance to him. That is our faith. You know, again, now we need to understand that faith, you know, we, our belief, you know, we're not talking about just agreeing with the facts. Biblically speaking, this sort of belief that is a, a belief that saves, it's a, a pledging of allegiance. It's a trust. It's a deep-founded conviction. You know, and, and to really, uh, I mean, I think that that's a, a phrase, a, a, a way that, a phrase we should perhaps use more often, is this idea of pledging allegiance to Jesus. That we are under him and his authority and that, you know, we understand who he is and we understand who we are. And we have a, a rightly under, understand our position that he is king. And we serve and we follow him. We've pledged our allegiance to him. 
Now, Peter has, Jesus says Peter has the right answer, that this answer has been revealed you know, to him by the Father. And then he says this in verse 18. Uh, 18 and 19 are verses that um, have often been you know, mis- misunderstood, I believe, or there's a, and there's controversy you know, concerning these verses. But um, let's read verse 18. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So Peter there in Greek is Petros. It's a, it's a small rock. And then when Jesus says, upon this rock, it's Petra, which is a large rock foundation. So there's a difference between those two rocks. Now, let's look otherwise, other places in Scripture to help our understanding. And we're not going to be exhaustive in this this morning because there's you know, many other Scriptures you know, we, could, we could look at. But I'm going to give you a few. One is back, you know, we're looking at two in Matthew. One from before, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Then in looking forward to Matthew 21, 42, Jesus says to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Here Jesus quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. So in this context, in Matthew 21, it's obvious that Jesus is referring to himself as this chief cornerstone that is rejected by the builders. Who are the builders there? They are the religious you know, leaders of Israel. All right, so but that he is the chief cornerstone. Peter himself, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8, says, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now there we have to ask the question, who does Peter say is the chief cornerstone of the church? Who does he say is the foundational cornerstone of the church? Well, he's talking about Jesus, right? I mean, there's... That's clear in all the context. He's not talking about himself. Um, then Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So throughout the scriptures, there's plenty of other Old Testament scriptures where you see that when it's talking about the rock, it's, it's about deity, it's about God, not about you know, someone who's simply human and only human like Peter was. Um, so 
we have Ephesians chapters 1, 4, and 5, Colossians 1, all speak to Christ as the head of the church. And so in light of all of those other passages, and even the Greek and the context of what we have in Matthew 16, it's really clear that this idea or interpretation that Jesus was making Peter, you know, the head of the church as this, you know, person that everybody would look to and be built on, doesn't line up with what Scripture says, doesn't line up with what Peter himself says about who is the head of the church and about who is the foundation of the church. That is, Jesus and only Jesus. Now, Peter is a stone built on him, and he says that other followers of Jesus are also stones built on that rock. Important, but you know, not the foundation. Peter wasn't the foundation. No other apostle was the foundation. You're not the foundation. I'm not the foundation. No other church leader has been a foundation. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus. That's clear in Scripture. So we, can, we read this. Um, you are Peter, a stone, and on this rock, that is Jesus, I will build my church. Um, and so that's a, it's such a wonderful, wonderful promise of Jesus. Listen to what he says. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So in the midst of all the fake and the phony, in the midst of all the hypocrisy, and all the leaven of modern-day Pharisees and Sadducees, in the midst of all false teaching in the world, of all the cult groups and those who don't preach any sort of true gospel about concerning Jesus, in the midst of all of that, Jesus is still building his church. He's building it today. He is building it all over the world. Jesus is building his church. He promises the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So it Because it can be discouraging. You see all the false teachings, that can be discouraging. You see all those who say the right things, but then you know, do all the wrong things, and that can be discouraging. And yet, be encouraged. Be confident, knowing that Jesus keeps his promises and that he is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, as we move forward, and for the sake of time, we will move forward. Um, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Wow. That's pretty intense. That's pretty intense. So, Peter has you know, great intentions. Don't doubt that. Peter had great intentions here. He had earlier been just so complimented by Jesus, and he had everything so right. And then, in, you know, the next scene, he has everything so wrong. Well, that can be us too, right? That can be us too. You know, and, what, and what Jesus says about him is that, you know, Peter didn't want 
Peter didn't want anything bad to happen to Jesus, even if it meant that Jesus would not fulfill his mission. Because he cared more about the here and now, that's his here and now, and everybody's safety than he did about the mission of Jesus being fulfilled. Because he's seeing things from a human point of view and not from God's point of view. He's not taking the time to go and pray and say, Father, what do you want? What, what is your will in this? He is just reacting to the circumstances. He's reacting to these words of Jesus and his heart you know, is, is, is good in that he doesn't want anything bad to happen to Jesus. But at what cost? At what cost? The cost of not fulfilling his mission, of not providing salvation. And the opportunity of salvation for us. So we, again, can be so similar. In one minute, we'll get it exactly right. Yes, Jesus is Savior and King. We understand the implications. Yes, I should pledge 100% allegiance to Jesus. But then in the next moment, we have a thought, an idea, a plan... We think it's good, and it's 100% contrary to God, what God wants. 100% contrary to his will. And I think about that, you know, this is Peter, a disciple of Jesus, talking to, talking to Jesus. And it's easy for Jesus, because he knows what his mission is, to say, hey, that's, that's, a, that's bad talk. You know, basically, like that's not good. That is that is wrong. That's not what God, you know, wants. That's not the plan. It's easy for Jesus to do that because he's he's Jesus. We also have to be careful that we're not listening to people when they are giving us something that is very pragmatic, but isn't the will of God. Our God is not the God of pragmatism. The God of faith. And I have to wonder how many parents throughout the generations have talked their kids out of doing God's will for their lives. Out of a good heart. Out of a good heart desiring for their children to be safe. Out of that heart that Peter had that safety was a higher priority than doing God's will, and so they talked their children out of doing God's will. Now, who's going to be responsible for that? Both the one who was talked out of doing God's will and the one doing the talking out of God's will. Both responsible. But you have to consider throughout the generations, you know, just how many times... A young person has gone to their parents and said, I know the Lord wants me to do X. And it may or may not have even been dangerous, but just something different. Sometimes it was the dangerous ones, and the, the dangerous ones the parents are saying, eh, no, that sounds risky. You shouldn't do that. You should go do this other thing. Hey, I mean, I'm a, I'm a parent. I get that. I mean, I see my child about to do something, you know, that's going to hurt them. You know, I, I want to keep them from being hurt. Hey, don't, don't do that. Don't run with scissors. You know, I mean, things like that, right? So if you think your child is doing something at whatever age, 
that is still your child, you think, hey, that's dangerous. Maybe you shouldn't do that. So there's that issue, but then there's also an issue. Parents get this dream for their kids. You know, my kid is going to be AX. And then the kid says, and I've seen this happen. I have seen this happen. I've seen a student say, I want to be a teacher. My parents are making me be an accountant. And in the family dynamics, that kid ends up being an accountant. Nothing wrong with being an accountant. That's what God wants for your life. But if God wants you to be a teacher and you end up being an accountant, that's, you know, miss the mark. I've seen that happen here at the University of Georgia. You know, that happens a lot of times where, you know, because the parents pull the, well, who's paying for this? Who's paying for this? You know, and so, again, we need to be people different from our world where we seek the will of God above all else and we trust him with the results, even if the results aren't what we like or what we want. We trust that his ways are higher and that his ways are better. We remember that if our lives are a speck of sand on the seashore, eternity is the seashore. Time's infinity. (laughs) And you just have to keep it all in the perspective of God and his will and what he wants. And because what he's telling us is that this whole deal can be costly. In verse 24, he says, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will it man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you that there are some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What we see in this passage is that discipleship is discipleship is costly. Look at the pictures that are described here. It's a picture of self-denial. To deny oneself, that's a costly thing. To take up a cross, you know, to take up a symbol of execution. We know Jesus, you know, had to carry his cross to the, you know, to the crucifixion for a period of time before another carried it. But we know that was the, the practice. He is giving them that picture because they all knew that picture. They had all seen and witnessed you know, how, the, how the Romans operated. And how they would make a person carry their own cross. So this is the picture that Jesus gives. It's not a pretty thing. You know, it's not a pretty picture. It's a very serious, difficult picture. So he talks about the importance of having the right priorities. What sort of trades in your life would you make? What's more important than your soul? What's more important than your soul being in right communion with God and, and going according to his way. What would you trade? He's kind of, somebody's saying, this isn't easy, 
but your other options are much worse. You know, there's some of that, that truth, that harsh you know, reality of truth that Jesus gives. Hey, my way's a hard way, but the other option is really bad. Now we're going to save verse 28 for next week in its explanation. It would, be, it would have been nice if those um, you know, centuries after um, the scriptures were written, people went back and said, hey, you know, we can all be on the same page here if we put numbers like chapters and, and verses, you know, next to things, right? So that'll, be, that'll make things easier. But sometimes where they put those chapter divisions uh, can lead to c- confusion. So it'd be nice if chapter 16 continued on to the beginning of 17. Uh, but it doesn't, and our time here this morning is, is spent on this. Um, but next week, we'll see how that was fulfilled when Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. But for now, for this morning, let's remember who Jesus is. Who do we say that he is? And how does that dictate the rest of life and all of our other priorities and our decisions, our perspectives, to make sure that we aren't taking in the leaven of the modern-day Pharisees and scribes? To make sure that we're not talking in, in a false, in, taking in a false teaching that says following Jesus is easy. To make sure we're not taking in a false teaching that says, you know, hey, you know, God exists basically to meet your human desires and your fleshly wants. You know, that we're, that we're not getting corrupted by that. Because it only takes a little bit. But that in our heart, in our understanding, we're saying true to who Jesus is, that our allegiance really is to him and for him. And maybe even this morning, you know, yes, you believe, I believe, you know, we, have, we don't need to be saved again. We have a, a true, you know, faith in him that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead. We've been forgiven. But maybe even this morning, we need to reaffirm our allegiance to him. An allegiance that's willing to take up our cross to follow him. And may we need that this morning. And so we ask God to reveal to us where our allegiances really lie. And are we willing to take up our cross? Are we taking up our cross and following him, denying ourselves for a greater purpose? Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Um, help us to love you more and to be filled with your love, filled with a joy that can only come from following you fully. Lord, I know I made some of this sound harsh as Jesus makes it sound harsh uh, this morning. This talk of self-denial, this talk of taking up our crosses. But Lord, as the scripture clearly shows us, as our own experiences have proven to us, that when we are following you fully, even at cost, there is no greater joy. And may your son, Jesus, may you be our joy. 
As we take that bread and that cup this morning, Jesus, may you be our greatest fulfillment, our greatest joy. And help us to follow you. Lord, we don't have the strength to do that on our own. We can't just muster up the will in our flesh, in our humanity to do it. We need to be filled with your spirit. So fill us, we pray. Help us. Give us your perspective and give us your power. We can't do it on our own. We admitted that the first time we came at the cross and had our burdens taken off. And we acknowledge that reality again this morning. We take the bread and the cup and we say, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you took our burdens. Take any other burdens away that I've picked up along the way. And free us and empower us to follow you without inhibitions, without burdens. Only burden being what you give us to carry. And the word, your word says that your burden is light, your yoke is easy. Lord, let that be true for us. Help us, Jesus, we ask it in your precious name.